It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't. But this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode five of 20. The building literally lifted up off of the foundation and slammed back down. You're listening to Lieutenant Colonel Ted Anderson, a man anybody would want to work with on a day like 9-11. For 19 years, Ted served in the United States Army's most elite parachute and airborne units. Nearly two years before the attack, he started working at the Pentagon as a congressional liaison assistant for the Army. On September 11, 2001, at 9.37 a.m., after two planes struck the Twin Towers in New York, another commercial jet flew into the side of the Pentagon, killing all 64 people aboard the aircraft and 125 other souls who worked in the building. The Pentagon is actually five separate buildings, also known as rings, built within each other and its departments are organized into five wedges, which each start at the five corners of the building. The American Airlines Flight 77 plane crashed between wedges one and two and penetrated through rings A, B, and C. Ted's office was in wedge two. In the moments after the attack, Ted immediately helped his coworkers escape, and while everyone exited the building, he courageously went back in to help save even more people. Today, Ted brings us that story. But first, a message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's get back to Lieutenant Colonel Ted Anderson with the story. The morning of 9-11, September the 11th, started out just like any other regular day. I had gone in very early at about 4.30 to do uh, physical training. My physical training was about an hour and a half, and then I would be at my desk sometime between 6.30 and 7 a.m. That morning, we were running a little bit late. We finished PT and came back to toward the office. You know, a couple of us went one way, and a couple of the other folks went a different way, and on our way to the office, We literally stopped um, at a place called the Redskins Snack Bar. And an hour later, the other folks were dead. And and we, we, you know, just by luck, were, we were in the wrong, right place at the, at the right time and and they were not. And um, we arrived in our office shortly after the first plane hit the tower in New York 
and we just like everybody else across the country were trying to figure out how you know a, a small or even a medium aircraft could could miss and, and hit a building in, in broad daylight with perfect uh, sunny skies and so forth. Just about that time the the second aircraft hit the other building right there live on television in front of everyone and um, I just I immediately had this very surreal feeling, surreal, I don't know, I, I felt like I was going into an outer body experience and I knew immediately, subconsciously, that we were being attacked and, and we were probably at war. I went back to my cubicle and I sat down and I literally tried to figure out what, what it is I should be doing. My wife at the time, she's my ex-wife now, was teaching a sixth grade social studies class in Stedman, North Carolina, which is right outside of Fort Bragg. It was a brand new beautiful school with up-to-date technology and they had these big beautiful televisions in, in every classroom and they were watching the news live following what was going on in New York, trying to discuss with one another what, what possibly could be going on, et cetera, et cetera. And she said to the class, hey, I know somebody who works in Washington, D.C. I'll give him a call and see what he thinks. And so my phone rang on my desk and I picked up the phone and, and she had me on speaker. And I'm telling the kids what a coordinated attack meant and what a coordinated attack was. But I also told them not to jump to any conclusions because the last time we had a major incident was uh, out in Oklahoma and um, that was uh, homegrown terrorism. We, we should not jump to any conclusions and no sooner than I said that the building literally lifted up off of the foundation and slammed back down. The walls caved in, the ceiling caved in, the lights went out. Of course, the phone was still working and they heard it. And my um, ex-wife yelled through the phone, what was that? I said, we've just been bombed, I've gotta go. And I hung up. I, I did not think logically at the time a plane had hit the Pentagon. I had assumed that there were a number of bombs that had been placed in the Pentagon and they, they would start going off one at a time. So immediately jumped up and screamed for everybody to get out of the office. I went out into the corridor that was closest to the mall entrance to the Pentagon. There's a bank of doors that are emergency use only. I ran over to one of these doors and started to kick it open. And one of the Pentagon police officers who was manning security ran down the hall and told me not to do that, that we were under small arms attack from the mall entrance outside. And it made sense to me, I mean, 
it's a tactic that the enemy still uses to this day. You know, you, you throw in a couple of bombs, people go to, to assist, and then you open fire. However, I, I put my ear up close to the door, like right on the door, and if small arms rapid fire, particularly AK-47 small arms were going off, you, you would absolutely unequivocally hear it through the door. And I heard nothing, and I just decided to push it open anyway, which I did. Um, there was nothing going on. There was no sign of anything out there. So I just pushed all the doors open and screamed for people to move my way. And um, it was like opening the stopper on your bathtub people literally were flowing through these doors just like emptying water out of a bathtub. And um, those individuals were going out into what we call the North Pentagon parking lot, trying to get as far away from the building as possible. I happened to look in the opposite direction, down toward Route 27, which runs by the, the side of the Pentagon that for the um, impact, and um, I, I saw, you know, pieces of, of metal displayed out on this beautiful grassy area. Before the attack, that side of the Pentagon was very well maintained, like a golf course. It was a couple acres of, of just beautiful lawn, and in the middle of it was a uh, heliport for helicopters to come in and out to pick up VIPs and so forth and there was also a control tower members of the Pentagon Fire Department manned this location they had a, a, a crash rescue truck when, when I got to that location and looked around the corner the, the, the gray pieces of matter that I had seen scattered out on the lawn were pieces of the aircraft as, as it had disintegrated um, in hitting the building. I um, saw that the Pentagon firemen, there were only two of them there, uh, had just pulled the crash truck out of their garage to um, start spraying foam on, on the point of impact. But at that point in time, there, there was there were no firemen fighting any sort of fire. It was just the blaze starting to engulf everything in its path. And I think, you know, many people have heard that, that when the aircraft hit the building, that it, as it disintegrated, the, the aircraft that was full of fuel to travel to the West Coast, uh, that fuel literally pushed through three buildings and with it came the fire. So immediately, just by instinct, I started running toward the point of impact. And I looked back and there was one person behind me. It happened to be a non-commissioned officer by the name of Chris Brayman. And I had known Chris, not personally, but Chris and I teamed up. I said, I just want to get inside the first office, which was along the E-ring, where most of the senior military officials worked. 
and I told Chris, if, if, I, can, if I can get inside, I'll, I will pull you through and our objective will be to low crawl out through the first office into the hallway, the corridor, and start screaming for people to come our way. Come our way, we are here to help you out. I took my suit coat off and I, I threw it up over the top of the window that had been blown out and I boosted myself up. Chris helped, helped push me up. I got up through the window, reached down and pulled uh, Chris up behind me. As soon as we were both on the deck or on the floor of the uh, first office, I, I was ahead of Chris and I told Chris to hold on to my ankle because obviously due to the smoke and so forth, we couldn't see anything. Um, I always carried a handkerchief in my back pocket. My grandmother had told me years and years and years ago that a gentleman would always carry a handkerchief in his pocket and you were to, to use that handkerchief accordingly. I, I happened to have one that day and I, I put it over my face and I was trying to um, control my breathing. I was not trying to inhale, you know, the smoke. So I had slowed down my breathing. Um, about that time, Chris reached through a compartment or what appeared to be a hole between these objects and literally grabbed Cheryl Moody, who was working in, in the office of the Army G1, which is Human Resources, um, grabbed her and pulled her out. And uh, as, as he did that, he boosted her up over the window and, and literally pushed her out of the window. And there were people outside um, by that time that were, um, you know, try, trying to help and so forth. People that had actual um, backboards and litters um, to carry the wounded. Ted and Chris saved two more women, one who just eight days later would die from her injuries. Shortly after re-entering, a few explosions went off, leaving Ted disoriented. I thought the ceiling was caving in. There were bright flashes of, of light uh, and fire. I covered my head and I hear Chris screaming, Sir, help me, sir, help me. And, and I turned my body back around and looked, crawled toward him. And he said, help me. And, and he was trying to put out the flames on what I didn't understand what was a person at that time. And so we smothered the fire, um, you know, using our, our jackets. And um, I helped Chris lift this guy up and pulled him out of the window very gingerly because he was so severely burned and was screaming at the top of his lungs that there were people behind him in the corridor. There are people behind me. Get the people behind me. They're in the corridor. At that point in time, I, I was trying to discern whether he was a civilian or he was military. And I saw 
along the back side of his neck a shirt and a suit coat lapel that had been burned into the back of his neck. Everything on the front of this guy had been burned away and, and was completely black. But I, I, I could see behind his neck that, that um, he, he was probably a civilian. And he kept screaming, you know, as he's going into shock, he's, he's still screaming for us to get the people out in the corridor. I, I helped Chris carry him part of the way, and, and there's some videotape you can see me and, and Chris uh, carrying this guy out. And I told Chris, I said, okay, so what we're gonna do next is we'll get back into the building the same way, and uh, again, we're gonna low crawl about four meters from the, the window to the first corridor. At that point, I will start screaming for people to come our way and we will direct them to the, the window to exit. And so as Chris and I were climbing up onto the window, I felt somebody grab me from behind and pull me out of the window. That was when the confrontation with the Arlington County Fire Department started. The uh, incident commander at the time, he had told his firemen not to let anybody back into the structure. And so they were over there doing their duty. But of course, we on the other hand, knew that we had comrades that were either trapped or dead and, and we had to get them. And you know, it's, it's a creed throughout the military that you never leave a fallen comrade behind, ever. Um, and it doesn't matter if I have to sacrifice my life in order to get the dead soldier out, then that's what my objective was. So we knew that there were people inside the Pentagon and it was our job to get back in there and get them out. And, and we really didn't have any sort of understanding that you know the fire department was there and that they had their mission which we did not understand. Uh, and we had our mission, and our mission was, was to get in there. So the first guy that pulled me out, I literally turned around and grabbed him and threw him against the wall. Another, another guy grabbed Chris and I, and, and we pushed him to the ground. And I turned around and told the crowd of, of military guys, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna bum rush these firemen and, you know, while some of you are holding the firemen back, we'll get back into the building. And um, it, it became very contentious at that point. I, I literally was losing my mind. After the break, we'll hear what happened next in this tense conflict and the rest of Ted's 9-11 story. Let's return to Ted trying to re-enter the burning Pentagon to save more lives, and firefighters telling him he couldn't. There, there were people holding me back and, and pulling me back from the scene. And um, I mean, I was screaming and crying and foaming at the mouth. But w within 20 to 30 minutes of that confrontation, that whole portion of the building collapsed. 
had we been inside trying to rescue those individuals, we, we would have certainly been killed. You know, within, within 30 minutes of, of that happening, I, I literally had one of the engine captains literally took me aside and said, look, here is an example of what would have happened if we had let you back in there. You would all be dead right now un underneath, underneath what had collapsed. And our, our mission is, is when we get to, to the fire scene, is to ensure that people have exited and anybody that have exited a building on fire uh, will not attempt to go back in and we will not let uh, untrained people go back in into a burning structure. That, that, that's our job as, as firemen. Uh, we know how to do that. And you know, it, it, it finally sunk in that, you know, that, that was not my specialty. That was not my military occupational skill. And so um, it, it was a hard thing to, to, to come to terms with, but those guys were, were my heroes and, and still are. Ted's day wasn't finished. Later that morning, he would lead a team of firefighters back into the Pentagon to check on a crucial department located in the most secure part of the building, known as the tank. It was the central nervous system of the Pentagon, where commanders monitor and communicate with armed forces around the world. They started taking in smoke and had no idea if the fire was encroaching, but they couldn't leave their battle stations. The United States had just been attacked and the military needed to respond. So they called for first responders to come down to do recon and test the air. Ted led a team of firefighters deep into the bowels of the Pentagon. They discovered the fire wasn't a threat and that people in the tank managed to fix the ventilation system. The air was okay and they would continue with their operations. But throughout the rest of the day, there were several warnings of other planes headed toward the Pentagon. So Ted and the other first responders were forced to evacuate the building. At about four o'clock, maybe 4.30, between four and five, I was laying propped up against a tree right next to the highway, fa facing the building. I thought to myself, you know, how in the hell am I gonna get home? My, everything that I had is inside the building. All my keys, my uniforms, my you know, 20 years of medical records are right there at my desk and everything's probably gone. Um, I can't get to my car because the car's parked uh, in North Parking, which is now a crime scene, and that's all taped off. Um, so the, the only way I'm gonna get home is, is riding the Metro. And um, as I understood the, the Metro uh, f from, you know, 10 o'clock that morning to, to the afternoon was, was literally packed, jam-packed full of people trying to get out of the city. But the time that I got on, th there weren't very many people riding at all. I rode from Pentagon City all the way out to Van Dorn Street Station, 
and walked about four blocks up to my condominium complex. I went in to see the office manager and th there were people that had the same problems that I, that I was having. No keys, not, not able to get into their apartments and so forth. So they had locksmiths on site and, and um, I, I went to my apartment and, and waited for a locksmith to show up and I, I went to sleep out in the grass while they were trying to make access into my apartment. And um, I, I remember that this guy kicked me in, in the feet and, and I jumped up thinking I was gonna punch somebody. And um, he said, hey, you can go into your apartment now. So, so I went in and my, my answering machine at the time had, had about 40 messages from people all over the world checking in on me. And I turned on the TV and that was the first time that I understood, heard about the, the towers actually coming down. I did not know what transpired in New York. I had no idea un until, you know, later, probably 6, 7 p.m. And, and I, at, at that point in time, I went and took a shower and I cried like a baby. I think more for the, for the New York scene than anything else um, because I hadn't seen or heard about it all day. Um, went into my bedroom and literally fell, fell down, passed out, went to sleep. And it, it felt like five minutes later, the phone was ringing next to my head, but it was actually, two, one, I think it was 1.45 in the morning. And um, one of the guys that I worked for s says, hey, I can't sleep, let's go to work. And of course I was sound asleep. Um, he said, I'll pick you up in 20 minutes, be in your battle dress uniform, which is, you know, your fatigues. We stopped at a 7-Eleven to get some coffee and there was a Sikh there by himself and he saw us in uniform and of course told us to take anything we wanted. But we got out onto to the highway and um, the highway itself is called 395 and, and it, it will take you from the outer beltways into the city. And from where we were, um, 395 was a steady incline um, to, to the city. And, and at some point you, you get to the, the high point and you crest the top of this ridge and before you, you can see the entire city of, of Washington, D.C. As we're getting closer and closer, the, the sky is, is turning, you know, from orange to yellow. And as soon as we broke the ridge, and you could see the, the Pentagon uh, on fire. You could see the flames dancing, you know, their way through, through all parts of, of the ceiling uh, and the rooftops that the firemen were on. You could see all of, all, all of the ladder companies and, and um, truck companies that were, were putting water on the blaze and and I said I said to, to this guy his name's Dave Anderson I said Dave will never get in there I mean look, look at the place he said oh no we'll we'll get in and so we we lit, stealthily found our way in and um, made our way through security of course the the building was still smoky but 
we were in water up to about um, just below our knees, trying to make our way back into the office. And we, of course, we got there. And um, transitioning from there down to the Army Operations Center, I, I was down in the Army Operations Center by the end of that day. And I, I pretty well stayed there for the next couple of months. It's as close as I could get to literally contributing to the fight at that point in time. If, if you were working on the Army staff, that was the tip of the spear, was to work in the Army Operations Center so you could get ready to, to fight and take the battle to the enemy. Ted is pretty hard on himself for not saving more people. It's a common sentiment that I've shared for years after the attacks in New York. He feels guilty. He feels like he failed. Why? Well, do you remember the man who was on fire that Ted helped save? Remember how while he was being lifted out of that window to safety, he was screaming that there were other people trapped behind him in that corridor and they needed help. Unfortunately, Chris and Ted never got the chance to find those people because that fireman grabbed Ted and lifted him out of the window, preventing him from re-entering. Well, just a few weeks later, Ted would learn something that haunts him to this day. I had one of the battalion chiefs tell me that they had found a group of people huddled together in that corridor. And, and I had always assumed that th those were the people that this individual was talking about that were trapped behind him. You know, the, the guilt, I, part of the guilt that, that I have to learn to live with and, and you know, it's, it's compartmentalizing. Um, I mean, I, 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 I saw a, a therapist for years for psychological help just because I, I knew it was something that I needed. I learned how to take parts of 9-11 of and, and compartmentalize it and put it up on a shelf. And if I kept all of my issues compartmentalized on a shelf, I didn't have to work with them day in and day out. It wasn't always facing me. It was a part of me, I was carrying this baggage with me, but you know, there are times now where I will smell something or I will hear something and, and there will be a flashback and something that, that's compartmentalized will come right back down into my face and, and I'll take a moment and I'll have to live through that and, and uh, take account of that, but to move forward effectively, you, you've got to be able to take that, put it in its case, and put, put it back up on the shelf. You're never going to get rid of any of this baggage. It's always going to be a part of you, but you've got to figure out a way to carry it. And if you don't, you know, you end up eating your own gun. People have said time and time again, you know, what possessed you to go and do what you did? 
And I said, it was nothing that was possessing me and it was nothing out of the ordinary. Um, I said, I, I think any other military person would have done the exact same thing at the exact same time. Your instincts take over and you don't have a lot of time to think about things. And I think firemen have the same sort of immediate action in, in response. And, and, I, and I've told people, I don't consider myself a hero and I don't consider myself having done anything out of the ordinary that, that I was ever proud of. You know, I always considered that I achieved mission failure and I failed. I personally failed in my mission. And so I, I've always felt ashamed, quite frankly. I'll tell my story, but the only thing I will tell you that I am unequivocally proud of is that the next day on 12 September, about 19,000 people uh, of the 28,000 that worked there showed up to work in a burning building. The, the fire burning in the roofs of the Pentagon, there were layers and layers and layers of, of roofs literally built on top of one another. And it, it, as soon as the firemen would put out you know, one level, uh, um, one wedge, they would find that the next wedge below it is on fire. And, and they would have to hack their way through that and, and put that fire out. And, and the fire wasn't completely out until sometime on 12 September. But listen, people showed up and went to work because A, we knew we were at war. Uh, B, our job was to be at our battle stations and see we were going to stay in the fight for as long as it took. And to close, here's Ted's final thoughts on the importance of this faithful day. Th this country was built on sacrifices of other individuals. In order for you to get up tomorrow and go to the Starbucks, all of those things you do without thinking about have all been provided. And they've been provided and paid for. Whether it was the Battle of Gettysburg or, you know, Baghdad, name a place, name a situation, 9-11. These were sacrifices that Americans made in order to further the betterment of our country and generations. So I, I, I think I'll end it there. Thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Anderson. And please never feel an ounce of guilt. You went well beyond the call of duty that morning. Anyone who witnessed the tragedies of 9-11, and especially the ones who put their lives on the line, they would call your actions heroic. We also want to thank Sergeant First Class Chris Brayman for his teamwork and heroism on that day as well. You both completed your mission. You both saved lives. Never think otherwise. 
You both had everyone six that morning. United States Army strong, gentlemen. May God bless you, and may God bless this beautiful country of America. And folks, if you feel compelled to help the 9-11 community, other first responders, and our veterans, please be sure to check out Tunnel to Towers. We told their story in episode number one. They do amazing work. And you can help them by becoming a T2T member at T2T.org. That is the letter T, number two, letter T.org. And to all those who have served our great country in one way or another, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you and please stay safe. And now, before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me. But I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today, as Nils so powerfully says. I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. And I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.